0: Hello, this is Helga Edwards, and I'm here with my husband Bob. In our last podcast episode, we read Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 to 13. In those verses, Abraham misled a king named Abimelech, saying that Sarah was merely his sister, intentionally giving the false impression that she was not his wife. Abimelech believed Abraham and took Sarah to be one of his many concubines. Through God's intervention, Abraham's deception was exposed. Abimelech restored Sarah to her husband and set about trying to make amends for his unintentional error. Today, we will be reading the conclusion of this story as it is told in Genesis 20, verses 14-18 to 18 of the Common English Bible. Beginning at verse 14. Abimelech took flocks, cattle, male servants and female servants, And gave them to abraham and abimelech returned his wife sarah abimelech said my land is here available to you live wherever you wish to sarah he said i've given your brother one thousand pieces of silver it means that neither you nor anyone with you has done anything wrong everything has been set right abraham prayed to god and god restored abimelech his wife and his women servants to health And they were able to have children because of the incident with abraham's wife sarah the lord had kept all of the women in abimelech's household from having children here ends our reading of genesis chapter 20. when abraham misled abimelech and abimelech added sarah to his harem god warned abimelech in a dream that sarah was actually abraham's wife Abimelech then restored Sarah to Abraham, and as a result of this, the women of Abimelech's household were once again able to bear children. In view of this chain of events, some have asked, Why were the women of Abimelech's household punished with barrenness, when Abraham was deceptive and Abimelech took someone else's wife as his concubine? Upon careful examination of our oldest available manuscripts, it appears that these women were not being punished at all. In the Hebrew and Greek language of Genesis 20, verse 17, we read that it was Abimelech's wife and concubines who were temporarily unable to conceive. This appears to have been a sign to Abimelech that something was not right in his household. In Genesis 20, verse 3, God warned Abimelech, that the punishment for taking another man's wife as a concubine would be death for the man. Abimelech responded by saying to God, Lord, will you really put an innocent nation to death? When Abimelech considered the possibility of being put to death, he thought not only of himself, but of the nation he hoped would come from his offspring. If he would die, so would the nation he hoped to sire. In Genesis 20, verse 7, some English translations state that God warned Abimelech that he and his household would all die, if Abimelech did not return Sarah to her husband. This language does not seem to convey the meaning of the verse accurately. In the Aramaic Targum of Onkelos, written in the first century AD, the language used here was a reference to the male offspring that a man hoped to have. In other words, if Abimelech did not turn away from infidelity, he and the male heirs that he hoped would carry on his name would be cut off. Earlier in the book of Genesis, we read about God's promise to make of Abraham's seed a great nation. God also promised Hagar that her son Ishmael's descendants would one day be a great nation. Fathering children that might lead to the creation of a large tribe or nation was important to men in these ancient cultures. This is one reason they took so many wives and concubines as intimate partners. When the wife and concubines of Abimelech were temporarily not conceiving children, this was not a punishment against the women, it was a warning to Abimelech. If Abimelech did not return Sarah to Abraham, God told him that he would die he and the male heirs that he hoped would carry on his name would be cut off. Genesis 20 verse 8 tells us that when the other men of Abimelech's household heard this, they were very afraid. The Hebrew word for men used in this verse is the plural of ish, and it is gender specific. God was warning the men of this culture not to seek to have descendants through the sin of infidelity.
1: God shared a similar warning to the men of Israel in Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, which read, You should do this as well. Cover the altar of the Lord with tears, weeping and groaning, because there is still no divine favor for your offering or favorable regard for anything from your hand. But you say, why? Because the Lord testifies about you. And the wife of your youth against whom you cheated. She is your partner, the wife of the covenant. Didn't he make her the one and the remnant of his spirit? What is the one? The one seeking godly offspring. You should guard your own spirit. Don't cheat on the wife of your youth. Because he hates divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And he also hates the one covering his garment with violence says the Lord of heavenly forces. Guard your own life and don't cheat. Verse 16 of this chapter says that God hates divorce. Ironically, this verse is sometimes used to tell women that they are obligated to remain married to an abusive, unfaithful, or even violent man. That is not what this passage is about. In fact, it is specifically the men of Israel were addressed by Malachi and told not to abandon the wife of their youth in an attempt to have offspring by other women. These men should seek only godly offspring through the sanctity of their marriage relationship. God says that he hates the infidelity of Israel's men and also when they behave violently. If they are to guard their own lives from God's judgment, they must turn away from these sins. Jesus similarly confronted a religious tradition taught by some of the rabbis of his day. The rabbinical school of Hillel taught that Jewish men could divorce their wives for any reason whatsoever. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, Jesus challenged this belief. Similarly, in Jesus' day, another rabbinical school, the school of Shammai, taught that it was permitted for Jewish men to have more than one wife at the same time. Josephus, a Jewish historian writing in the first century AD, explained that this was a common practice among his people. Contradicting the school of Shammai, Jesus also taught that one man and one woman, not multiple wives or concubines, were meant to become one flesh in one marriage covenant. We find that in Mark chapter 10 Verses 6 through 8. In the Old Testament, God certainly worked through people who lived in a fallen culture that permitted polygamy. This does not mean, however, that polygamy was ever God's will for human relationships. Similarly, the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy about the church in Ephesus, explained that any man wishing to become a Christian leader could not practice either infidelity or polygamy. He must be the husband of one wife. We find that language in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 and 12. These words were directed exclusively to men because only men, according to oral tradition, were permitted to have more than one wife, either in succession or at the same time. Women did not require the same warning. Since Paul's prohibition against adultery and polygamy did not address female leaders, some patriarchal theologians have concluded that women may not be leaders in the church. This is a false assumption. It is most likely the case that Paul was refuting oral traditions that applied exclusively to men. In contrast to this faulty assumption, the New Testament is filled with examples of women who served as Christian leaders. Junia was an apostle. Phoebe was a deacon. Priscilla taught a man the way of God more accurately. Eodia and Syntyche were co-workers with the Apostle Paul. And Philip's four daughters prophesied. Verses prohibiting male infidelity and polygamy were never meant to exclude women from church leadership. Unfortunately, some English translations of First Timothy chapter 3 appear to change its meaning. In 1 Timothy 3.2, for example, the New Living Translation says that a church leader must be a man. Similarly, in 1 Timothy 3.8, the New American Standard Bible says that deacons must be men. Neither of these passages in the New Testament's original language of Koine Greek specify that either leaders or deacons in the church must be male. To summarize, In Genesis chapter 20, God did not punish women for the sins and errors of men. The message of Malachi chapter 2 does not prohibit women from leaving unfaithful or violent husbands. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul does not prohibit women from serving as leaders in the church. These Bible passages confront the sins and errors of men, deception, adultery, violence, and polygamy. It is a tragedy that all of these verses have been distorted in a manner that is detrimental to women. Followers of Jesus Christ must learn to understand what the Bible said to its originally intended audience. We must be careful to separate patriarchal theology from the will of God.